please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Our text this morning will be John chapter 6, beginning of verse 35 through verse 40. We are taking a break from our series on the church, and we're going to focus on a few other things this Sunday and then the next Sunday. I would like for us to be back together, uh, that hopefully we'll, we will be back together on the 8th to continue that series in person. This isn't to say that what we're talking about today is any less important. Uh, by all means, it is uh, one of my favorite passages of Scripture and probably one that gives us some great comfort and encouragement to our hearts. So we're going to take a break from that, and we are going to focus this morning on John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. And I pray indeed that it will be a comfort to us. See, there are... And after talking with a number of us and then just thinking of my own my own life as well, that there are times uh, for us as believers when we have truly, truly messed up and truly sinned against God. And if we are being honest with ourselves, this is something that we would have no difficulty in admitting. For even the Apostle Paul, as great of an apostle that he, as he was, expresses also in Romans chapter 7, that the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And it's no longer me doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So if we are being honest with ourselves, we will admit and acknowledge without hesitation that we have dishonored God often. We do it often by what we say, what we think. The very things that we do, we dishonor our Lord and recognize that we have sinned against him. And the thing that occurs most of the time is that when we have sinned against him and we have dishonored him, one of the first things that we end up doing is we, well, we do feel the guilt of it, but we end up running from prayer because it's in those moments that we think that if we come before the Lord in prayer at that particular time when this has just occurred, then he is just going to be so indignant with us that he is just going to cast us off to the side. And so, for whatever reason, we may uh, think to ourselves, um, as silly as it sounds, that we're just going to wait a little while. We're just going to let things cool off. We're going to let me focus on something else, and then we'll come before the Lord later, and perhaps he won't be as upset uh, later on when I come before him. You know, this is something silly, but we, we act that way. We act as though this is going to happen. If we were to come before the Lord in those very moments when we have sinned and we're feeling the guilt of our sin because of the spirit of God within us. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting that we study theology and we study theology and we, we, we rightly study theology. Uh, it is needful to be sure. But it's, it's in those times that we forget uh, the theology that we have studied when it comes to our own personal experience. When we sin, we still doubt God's love and commitment to us. We forget the, the need uh, that we have to preach back to ourselves, you know, the promises of God and the surety that we have in Christ. 
if we think for a moment and just going back to the Psalms and we find how the Psalms are expressing, you know, the heart of, of the psalmist in numerous places where he he's preaching back to himself of the promises of God, either because of his envy towards the wicked or because of whatever trial that he's going through. He has to preach back to himself. How much more then do we have to preach back to ourselves the promises of God, especially when we are uh, doubting his love for us because of the dishonor that we have brought to him? This particular passage of scripture here in John chapter six is one that is, I pray, such an encouragement to our hearts. If ever we doubt God's eternal covenant love for us, then let this text right here extinguish those doubts. Let this text be our weapon against our own minds and fears. This text, this passage, this glorious passage expresses the assuredness of Christ's love for his own, for the Father's love for those that he gave to Christ, and the Holy Spirit's love for them and preserving them until the end. This is an amazing passage of scripture. Let us give our attention then to the word of God. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. John chapter 6, beginning verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We give you thanks, Father, for the wonderful encouragement and comfort that it is to our hearts. I pray, Holy Father, that as we work our way through this passage, that you would illuminate this, this text in our hearts. Give us peace. Give us such a strength, Father, uh, to know that our salvation is not dependent upon us. It's solely dependent upon you and your faithfulness and your delight in saving. Father, for all who are hearing this this morning, I pray that you would encourage all of us and let us remember the promises of God, that even in our times of great disappointments and great failures, that we can always remember that you, Father, are and have indeed forgiven us, for Christ has paid our penalty. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Christ, and I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this particular passage of scripture is very familiar to us. I'm sure it's one that we've read before, one that we've referenced before in, in many different uh, sermons, because the, the, the content of this passage is just so amazing anyway. Uh, 
and it is such a comfort. It is such, it puts the majesty and the splendor of God on display as we are looking at this particular passage in reference to what the implication is towards us. Now, this text, of course, that we have just read is in the midst of Jesus's response to the crowds that they are only following him because they ate and were filled by him. He has fed the multitudes. He has done a number of miracles and they are continually following him. He has, of course, uh, walked on water to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're following him. They go over. They say, when did you come over here? They're looking to follow more. Jesus says to them in this rebuke towards them in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He said, the only reason that you're following me is because of, of being filled with the physical sustenance that I have, have provided for you. He is confronting their unbelief. They are only following for that very reason. And so he is confronting their unbelief. And so he says to them, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, has, the Father God, has set his seal. He says, don't work for the food which perishes, but for that which endures unto eternal life. And what is this food? Well, he tells us exactly what this food is. It is, it is himself. It is he who is the bread of life. And then he tells them, well, how do you... How do you get this? How do you work for this food? Because automatically, perhaps, that their minds are automatically going into this law works sort of orientation. For they ask him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? How is it that we can come by this that you're talking about here? And what does he say? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is what God requires as far as any kind of a work is to believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in Christ, he says. Now the crowds have seen his miracles. They have been viewing his healing of the sick and the feeding of the multitudes, but they did not understand these signs that, that were pointing to him as the Messiah. They understood Christ's proverb of working for this particular food or don't work for the food which perishes. They understood this proverb no better than what the Samaritan woman did when he spoke to her about living water. They both gave a literal interpretation to his saying, and both of them got it wrong. And this exchange demonstrates the unbelief of the crowd. For Jesus, in effect, says to the crowd, stop yearning for the physical food as if it will ever fill the void that is in your heart. It has no abiding value. Render to God the work of faith and the one whom he has sent. He's the real food, which produces life and sustains life. He will give himself uh, for those who believe and never will they hunger or thirst spiritually, for they are satisfied in him. That's why he is the bread of life. He is the one who, if you come to him, you will never hunger, you will never thirst, for you will be satisfied spiritually in him. And the Father has certified him as the Messiah through working through him all the signs and the miracles that he has performed. The Father has set his seal upon him. So when Jesus is speaking again of, of works, they immediately assume the works of the law. And he replies that the work is believe. This is what this is what is required. Believe. And so their, their unbelief is demonstrated even further by asking him now the questions 
What do you do then for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? So they've already seen a number of works. They've already been fed by him through this great miracle uh, that he performed earlier. And now they're going to now confront him with, okay, so you're saying that you're the bread of life. You're saying that if we believe in you, we'll never hunger and never thirst, though they're getting that wrong as well. What do you do for a sign to demonstrate to us the truth of what you're saying? And so what then do they do? They bring up the manna in the wilderness that through God's agent Moses, he had provided this physical sustenance for the people. They say in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it is written, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So basically the implication here is if God used the agent Moses, whom they esteemed very highly, obviously, to give them this physical sustenance, are you greater than Moses? Are you uh, going to demonstrate a greater authority than Moses? Or are you God's agent that he's going to do something even greater in you? So this is a contrast that now the people are demonstrating uh, and or that they are that they are obviously confronting Christ with, but they're demonstrating their unbelief in the midst of it as well. Indeed, Moses was the agent God used, but the real giver, Jesus says, was indeed God himself. And that the true nourishment is from God uh, as it was then, so it is now that he sends Christ who is the bread of life. It is he who imparts and sustains life. He grants the spiritual everlasting life uh, that Jesus is referencing here. It is him. One writer says this. It is through faith, through intimate union with him, assimilating him spiritually as physical bread is assimilated physically excuse me, assimilating him spiritually as physical bread is assimilated physically, that man attains to everlasting life. The Lord says to them, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. This is Jesus's reply back to them, because they still were unbelieving. Now they want to contrast him with, with Moses, who was God's agent in, in giving them manna out of the wilderness, or in the wilderness. So what does Jesus say? He's now rebuking them for their unbelief even further to say, you have seen me. You've seen the miracles. You've seen all of this, and you still do not believe. He is then placing back upon them the responsibility of, of their own rejection of him. He places the blame on them for their unbelief. They are responsible for their actions of not believing, though they have seen all of these things and they have heard his preaching. You have to understand something. It is not as though that they desire to believe and Christ says no. It is that they in their darkened and fallen state do not want to believe or come to him. Therefore, they raise these objections to him when they hear what it is that he is saying of what they are required to do. And so in light of that, we have our Lord's statement in verse 37. That all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So if there's any doubt that it is the crowd's responsibility in their own unbelief, that they are responsible rather for their own unbelief, Jesus reiterates the fact that if you did come to me, and you were truly coming to me with genuine faith, I would not cast you out. But as it was, of course, they were uh, in their unbelief.
they followed him not out of a genuine heart, but because of the physical nourishment that he provided. If they had followed him with genuine faith, then these words that he just said in verse 37 would be true towards them, that he would not cast them out, but he would raise them up in the resurrection on the last day, for that is the promise that he gives thereafter, that of all that the Father has given to him, that he would raise it up on the last day. And this chapter actually goes on to, to tell us that many of those, as a result of this exchange between Jesus and the crowd, that they were walking with him no more. Because that was a demonstration that they were unbelieving. Their hearts were hardened to the truth of who he was, and so they left. And, of course, this is where he says to the disciples, will you go also? Lord, where, where will we go? You have the words of life. Not any may come. But only those whom the Spirit imparts life to is what we are told in verse 63 of this chapter. Only by his work did we come to Christ. They come because they are unable to come, he says in verse 44. They come because it is granted to them to come, he says in verse 65. Otherwise, those that were in that crowd, of course, would remain in their unbelief because they don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. They were only interested in the temporary things that he could do for them and not in the spiritual life that he can impart for them, because that's what his purpose was. If we have any other doubts about what Jesus's purpose in his incarnation was, it was to preach to them and impart spiritual life to them as the father would will. But when we're reading this, these things. Of course, this is grounded in the doctrine of election. We know these things. We've been over these things a number of times. They whom the Father has chosen unto salvation are those in his appointed time that come by the working of the Spirit of God to Christ. The Sovereign Lord is the author and the finisher of faith. It is he who calls and he who justifies. It is he who is the divine initiator of salvation and the one who grants faith. It is he who causes us to be born again, and as a result, we repent and believe upon Christ. These are truths that we have examined a number of times before. These are the truths that place the majesty and the splendor of God before us. It is these truths that cause a greater adoration of God in us. And it is these truths that give us assurance in our times of doubt. It is this truth that comforts our hearts through our sins, and through our failures. When we look back at the implications of verse 37, when Jesus makes this marvelous statement, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. What an amazing statement by our Lord. What an amazing passage that this is. And this is what I want to focus in on. I want to look at this passage more closely because it is this passage that is giving us even greater encouragement and comfort to our hearts through our sins and through our failures, especially in the times when, as I was speaking of before, that when we sin and we dishonor the Lord, that our first reaction then is to, to ignore it or to put it off till later before we come before the Lord in prayer because we think he's just, just going to be so angry towards us but this passage here teaches us something different of the nature and and of the nature of god's love towards us and, and his desire for reconciliation and his 
his delight in saving sinners as we. Let's look at this. Verse 37, where we've seen what's going on in the passage. We've seen how Jesus is responding to the crowds. We see why he is saying what he's saying. Now let's look at this more closely. He says, all that the Father gives me. This is language that Jesus uses also in his high priestly prayer in John 17. That we, we know and remember of the, the sovereignty of God and salvation. We know that it is in reference that, <clears throat> that this is in reference to every single individual that God has chosen in eternity past. That all that the Father gives me. That if we think back to what the Apostle Paul's statement was in Ephesians chapter 1, he begins in verse 3 by talking about all these spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly places. He then pinpoints one of the first things he says that is the foundation of the rest of the things that he speaks of in that chapter and in that, that whole phrase that he gives is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he says in verse 5, in love he predestined us. This is a demonstration of God's love for his, for his elect, for his people. All that the Father has given to him, he did so out of a love for his son. He did so out of a love for those that he decided to bestow his love upon. And this takes us back as well to the truths that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. When we look at this passage in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. Remember this, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember, when we were going through this passage of scripture before, that this word foreknew does not mean that God knew beforehand. It doesn't mean that he has just some knowledge of the future it means it's a term of of intimacy that those whom he loved intimately beforehand for this is the same word that is being used or obviously with a prefix on it but this is the same word and the idea that is being used when you talk about intimacy within the scripture that joseph did not know mary until after she had given birth to christ he didn't know her in that intimate sense when you think of the day that everyone stands before the Lord and the wicked stand before the Lord. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. This is not just talking about he didn't know something about them or he, he had no idea who they were. He did not know them intimately, personally, in this loving relationship. This is what is being conveyed to us by the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved intimately beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is taking us back to the very, very reality that we are learning here in John chapter 6. That the father from all eternity decided to bestow his love upon certain ones for his purpose and pleasure. We don't know why. But it is in love that he predestined us and it is in love that he gives us to the son. That all that the father gives to the son, he says, is, is this demonstration of love and delight in the Lord to do this for his son. He says, all that the father gives me. What an amazing statement when you begin to unpack this idea that the Lord is doing this out of love, that 
it is indeed the Lord's love that is unfathomable to be sure, but it is his, his love that defies all understanding that is so gracious and kind that his, it is a demonstration of his disposition of his heart towards us. He affectionately loves us. He desires good for us. He desires relationship with us. He longs for us to be with him in heaven. He loves us to the fullest. There is no ounce of God's love that is not directed to those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves, his, his love keeps us from apostatizing. His love keeps us preserved in his hand. His love keeps us from the evil one. His love is demonstrated by his continual invita invitation for us to come before him in prayer. His love is ultimately seen in his sending the son to purchase our redemption. His love is demonstrating then by sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell with believers and continually unite them to himself and to the son. His love is known through his comfort and encouragement in times of sadness and pain. It is known by the supplying of every need for us as Jesus discloses for us in the Sermon on the Mount. His love is seen in his discipline for us as we enter into sin. He desires for us what is good. And this is what the writer of Hebrews teaches us. For the, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. His love is demonstrated through the giving of his word that we may come to know him more intimately. His love is demonstrated through revealing to us his law that we can know with certainty what he desires for us or from us. And his love is demonstrated through the fact that he purposed to save us from all eternity, that we were deserving of wrath, but instead he decided to bestow grace. And this was an act of his love uh, towards those that he has given to Christ. Because of the love of the father towards those he predestined, all of them, every single one that he chose from the beginning, every single one whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, as we're told in Revelation 13, he freely and joyfully gives to the son. For he promised them to the son from all eternity. And this is his gift to the son. You. We are told. In Titus chapter one. Beginning in verse one. Paul, a bond servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior. You have the apostle Paul that is recounting his ministry as to what it is that he is doing. He is a bond servant of God. Better term would be a slave, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And his ministry is for the faith of those chosen of God, the elect of God, right? We already know this. The knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life. So you have all three stages, basically, of salvation that are being re referenced there. Their justification, their sanctification, and their glorification, which will come at God's appointed time. But he says this, that this was all in accordance to the fact of God's promise that he promised long ages ago. <clears throat> now, verse two, when he says that long ages ago, actually, uh, the word itself means before times eternal. That's what the word means. So if God made this promise before times eternal, obviously, there's no one there. There is no people on the earth. There is no angelic host that have been created. 
So who did God make a promise to before the world began? Who did he make a promise to in eternity past? The only one that could have been uh, in reference here and that I believe is absolutely in reference here is the Lord Jesus, that the Father in eternity past promised this love gift to his son. And the expression of that and how this is all coming about is one through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles who are ministering for the faith of those who are chosen of God. They were chosen of God and given to the Son. This is a promise that the Father has made to the Son in ages past. And the Lord, the Father, delights in giving you to his Son as a love gift from the Father to the Son. He says of these that all that the Father has given him, he says, will come. It is a done deal. There is none that will ever be lost. There are none that will ever be left behind. They will come. Though the fall of Adam affected man to his very core, that his mind, his will, and his heart are fallen, God has secured the means whereby they will come to Christ, that they are unable to call, up, to call upon Christ. And this the Father has done through the Spirit of God, who is sent to fetch the bride. It is he who changes the disposition of the darkened hearts and expels the darkness from our hearts through the light of Christ. It is he who restores the moral image of God to the elect of God. Now, these passages are showing us that it is the Lord that is bringing us to life. In Ephesians chapter 2, Listen to this. And you, beginning verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. But God, being rich, and mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. What an amazing statement. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. He says in John chapter 1, beginning of verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They responded in faith, and they received Christ in faith, and they were adopted into the family of God because they were first born of God. He says in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Sorry. First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who is the one who just performed this work? Obviously, it is the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It is he who done the work within us through the means of the Spirit of God, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere. He says this again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, that we have been made alive by the Lord. It is the Lord who has ensured us coming to the Son because he has indeed caused us to be born again. He has imparted to us spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We know this, of course, that it is the Spirit who moves upon people in order to cause them to be born again. It is not you who believe and then you're born again because you don't have faith to believe. It is assured that you will come because it is the Spirit of God that has done this work within you that you do come because now you have been born from above. You have been born of God. You have you have a new nature, you're a new creature in Christ, and as a result, you have new desires, and you have uh, this desire then to call upon Christ in faith and to repent before him, because this spiritual life has been imparted to you, and now you've experienced this resurrection uh, from where you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you've been made alive together with Christ. This is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who performs this act, this supernatural act. And in doing so, he grants us faith and the ability to believe with all of our minds and hearts and, and exercise that belief through our will in action, through our wills in performing the actions of coming to Christ and repenting before him. It is the Holy Spirit that has enabled us to see our state before a holy God and repent before him. He has enabled us to accept the things of the Spirit of God and, and, and to delight in calling upon Christ our Savior. The Holy Spirit did not perform this, this <clears throat> work only once, but the Spirit of God is continually, always residing with us, keeping us, preserving us, and ensuring that we will continue to believe and receive the culmination of our salvation for what he saved us for. It is sure that all that the Father has given to the Son will come. It is not a matter of they might come or we hope that they'll come. It is a done deal. They will come because God is performing this work in them to ensure that they do come. And indeed, they do. And not one of them is lost. Now, I want us to look even further now at more of the application then towards you. We see what's going on in the text. We see how it's connected to the doctrine of election. We see God's sovereignty and his work and his delight and how he, out of love, has chosen us into salvation. And out of love, he ensures that we will come to Christ. But here is the great encouragement for our hearts whenever we have sinned and we think about the failures that we have done before a holy God, that of how we have sinned against our Father. Here's what he says. Here's what he says to you. In John, back in John chapter 6, what does he say here? That all that the Father gives me will come. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly 
not cast out, he says. Christ will never reject his gift from the Father, his love gift, which is you, who have genuinely called upon him in faith. He promises that all who believe will have eternal life. He promises in this passage here in verses 39 and 40 that he's come to do the will of the Father. This is one uh, sure uh, promise that we have that he will receive us and not cast us out is because he come to do the will of the Father. His will is not in conflict with the will of the Father. For all that the Father has given to him, he delights in receiving, and he will raise them up on the last day. He promises that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will be raised on the last day. And we can rest assured that this promise is never going to fail. This promise is never going to change because the scripture affirms for us, according to the writer of Hebrews, that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And never will he regret paying for your sins. Never will he treat you as subpar because of your continued failures. Never will he begrudge you from coming into the presence of his Father to receive grace, for he will never cast you out. He will never not receive you. He will joyfully and willingly and graciously receive you into his flock. Think of these things. That Christ prayed for you to his Father and asked his Father that you may be one with all of the elect of God and thereby be one with both he and the, and the Son. This is in his high priestly prayer in John 17. That Christ prayed for you that you would be with him where he is and behold his glory as he is the sovereign king who is high and lifted up who has given his life for you. He prayed that your joy will be made full not only in the life to come but in this life as well. You are in Christ. Because the good shepherd himself called you to be his sheep. This he done freely and joyfully. He laid down his life for every single one of his sheep. Those that the father had given to him. He knew. You have to understand something. He knew every single sheep that would be in his fold. And even in his final hours before his crucifixion and his propitiation. He never asked the father to diminish the number of his sheep or to exclude any whose sins he was ready to bear. You know, we think to ourselves, well, how can God love me? How can, how can God still accept me because of what it is that I've done? In view of what you've done, in view of the things that you haven't even done yet, Christ still accepted you and Christ has still paid for your sins in spite of you. In the final hours, never did he ask the Father to diminish not one number of the elect of God that the Father was giving to him, ever. He endured the shame of the cross. He despised it, but he did so for the joy that was set before him, the people whom the Father had given to him. Though there is always a fear of being rejected by him because of our sins and failures, because we are immediately aware of our own sin before a holy God, and especially after we've done something just to dishonor him blatantly. The scriptures give us the comfort of knowing that if we do sin, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His word comforts us to know 
that if we come before him with a broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise that for his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness, his faithfulness towards those that he has given to Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that we may approach the throne of grace confidently, boldly. There has never been any excluded from those that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, ever. In light of all of these things, we may come up with certain objections and we say, but what about this and what about this? The Puritan John Bunyan anticipated a number of these objections in his writing, Come and Welcome to Jesus. Here's how he, how he describes this exchange between the sinner and Christ. Us. No, wait. We say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. The Lord replies, I know. Us. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. Our Lord says, I know it all. Us. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my, my past, it's my present too. The Lord says, I understand. Us. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. Our Lord says, that's the only kind of person I've come to help. We, the burden is heavy, and hereafter all the time, our Lord says, then let me carry it. We say it's too much to bear. He says, not for me. We say, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others, they're against you. He says that I'm the one most suited to forgive them. We say, but the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And he says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a wonderful promise. This promise of verse 37 was provided to answer all those objections and more. And indeed they do. We cannot give any reason of why Christ would ever reject his sheep because there are no reasons and never will he reject any of his sheep. Never will he forsake them. Indeed, we have our times of doubt and fear that because we've done something sinful that we'll be rejected by him. But no, dear friends. Not at all. Even in the Father's correction towards you, his love never departs. And God will not have a scowl on his face, as one theologian said. He'll never have a scowl on his face when you enter into heaven, looking at you, determining all the things that you did wrong. But in fact, he will be like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who will run to his son and embrace him and kiss him and put on him the best robe have a celebration that he's home. That's the kind of response that you'll get from the Father. Be encouraged to know 
dear friends, that you have truly been forgiven in Christ. That you are loved by him, and as a result, that you will never be rejected by him. He delights in you. The Son delights in you because you were given to him by the Father. The Father delights in you because he has chosen you for his purpose and pleasure and decided to love you and to give you as a love gift to his Son. The Spirit of God delights in you because he is, he is having the privilege of going to fetch the bride for the Son and to make her ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. when we think about all the things that God has done for us in Christ and how his love is so expressed to us all through the pages of scripture, dear friends, always be encouraged to know that even in the times of your worst sin, your worst, that God still loves you and that you will never be forsaken by him. If it's things in your past or it's things in your present or things that will eventually come, Know and understand that all that the Father has given to him will come. And the one who comes to him, he will certainly, he will in no wise cast out. Your salvation is secured and it is sure. So preach this back to yourself in your times of doubt and fear that you will be rejected by the Lord because of, of your failures and your sins. Instead, in light of them, run to Christ and cling to the Savior, knowing that he is your only hope and that he indeed cares for you. For the scripture tells us, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. If by chance, if you have not understood uh, what it is to be loved by God, because never have you cried out to him with genuine faith, what then does it take to be uh, within uh, the object of God's love, but it is to believe in his son. What may we do to work the works of God? Jesus says to believe in him whom he has sent. Believe that he was indeed the son of God. Believe that he paid for your sins on the cross and that he rose again three days later to give you the promise of eternal life because he conquered death and you are privileged to partake in that victory because you are now in him. What does it take to become a Christian? It is to repent before God and believe in him. That's it. And as a result of genuinely coming to him with faith to believe in who he was and to commit your life to him, you will know the love of God. You will know what it is to be secured in the hand of God, preserved in his hand and be sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. Dear friends, let this passage be to you such an encouragement such a weapon that you have to that, that it would extinguish any any doubt whenever the enemy throws up your sins back to you i pray that this would indeed be encouragement to you and such a source of strength to remember what christ has said here he will never forsake you and never will he cast you out. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you 
that from eternity past you chose to bestow your love upon us and at your appointed time by the working of the Spirit of God you brought us to life and enabled us to acknowledge our sinful state before you the ability to to fight daily to turn from it and enabled us then to believe upon Christ and to exercise faith that you have granted us how we thank you for the work of God within our hearts and thank you for the promises that you have given us let us remember father that in view of all of our sin you still chose you still chose us unto salvation and that Christ in view of all of our sin willingly paid the penalty for us let us remember this let us reflect upon it and preach it to ourselves often that we would never be defeated or to think that your love has departed from us let us always be willing to come before you in prayer in our guilty state as we have dishonored you let us always seek to come before you to be restored and to have that peace of heart to know that we have been forgiven thank you so much for all the work of god that you've done in in our lives and thank you for this wonderful passage of scripture that is such an encouragement to us i pray father that you be glorified in all of us that your name would be made great for we love you because you first loved us in jesus name we pray amen